Hello, this is Dr. Ed Hill, host of This Week in the Word, where we grow in our knowledge of the Word of God and our walk with Christ. We're so glad that you joined us today. We're in a series in the book of Jude where we are talking about the battle for the truth. We come to Jude, there's only one chapter, so we're, we're in the book of Jude, but we come to verse 10, and I think we will probably go through verse, uh, probably verse 14 today, if we get that far. But we're calling this episode, Bad Fellas, part one. Bad Fellas, who they are, and how they act. We're talking about their bad beliefs and their bad behaviors. You see, it's important that we realize as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that a man's morality tends to dictate his theology. And of course, his theology dictates his behavior. Now, let's go to the book of Jude. And as I mentioned, it is just one chapter. So, in the book of Jude, it's right before the book of the Revelation, at the end of the Christian New Testament. Let's go to verse 10. Now, he's talking about the false teachers who have invaded the church, even right there within just a few decades after the church was born in the first century, they were grappling and dealing with false teachers, and certainly the, their behavior was nothing to look up to either. <laughs> so the believers had been urged by God, uh, speaking through Jude, the believers in Christ have been urged to defend the faith, that is, the set doctrine of Christian beliefs that have always been Christian doctrine from the very start. And yet these were being compromised and challenged in these churches. And Jude is inspired by the Spirit of God to call believers to take a stand. Now too often today, I'm recording this in December 2019, but too often today, professing Christians seem to act like we are in Disneyland. We are not in Disneyland, friend. This is not an amusement park that we're walking through. In the, the vein of thought of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that, if you haven't, you should, we're on a journey to celestial city, that is to heaven. And this is a battlefield we're going through, not an amusement park. This is not Disneyland. And we have to contend for the faith. That means struggle like you would think of somebody wrestling. So we come to verse 10, and he's describing even further the bad beliefs and bad behaviors of these false teachers. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beast in those things they corrupt themselves. So these false teachers, they're natural, not spiritual. Now, if you know even a little bit of the Bible, you know that a natural man is a lost man. He's still in his sins. 
He's never been born again. He's unregenerate. She's unregenerate. They are not spiritual because they can't be. They're contained within the the natural realm as any lost person would be, even though they're in religious uh, settings like churches, Bible colleges, seminaries, ministries, institutions, and so forth. So they're not spiritual, meaning they're not saved. These are the people that we're having to contend with. And he says here, but these speak evil of those things which they know not. That is, they're, they're ignorant about what they're always shooting their mouth off about. But what they know naturally, that is, in the, in the physical, natural realm, as brute beasts or just irrational animals, and those things, they corrupt themselves. That is, they're destroying themselves. And of course, anybody who's uh, influenced by them as well, I would say, but they destroy themselves in this whole matter. These are the people that we have to stand against. Now, they will not hesitate at all to hate and to put down true spiritual leaders. Many years ago, a well-known, let's call him a well-known cleric, a religious leader, Uh, on the national stage was angry at something that Jerry Falwell, the uh, founding pastor at Thomas Road Baptist Church, was saying, and it was based on the Bible. And this this world-renowned religious leader, and I'm going to say what he said. I don't talk this way, but I want you to hear how this, quote, religious person responded to Jerry Falwell. This, this world-renowned, uh, Peace Prize-winning religious leader said, Jerry Falwell can go to hell. Now, that doesn't sound like a very nice thing to say about someone who's a Christian pastor who's preaching the Word of God and winning souls. I mean, that's not a nice thing. But just like it says here in verse 10, but these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts in those things they corrupt themselves. Now let's go a little further and let's find out more about these bad fellows. Verse 11, woe unto them. Now we use that word woe, W-O-E, not like woe, like woe horse, stop. But that W-O-E word woe means a, a terrible calamity, a judgment. It is like a response to the judgment that is coming. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And if you're new to the Bible right now, you're going, like, what is he talking about? All right, let, let me help you out here just a little bit. First, he says, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now, we need, to, we need to unpack that, break that down so that you can get the full impact of what he is saying here. These false teachers, with even more false living, these false teachers have gone in the way of Cain. That is, they have taken the way or the pathway of Cain. They, they've chosen the way of Cain, and that is dead religion. 
So who is this Cain person mentioned here in verse 11? You may be a brand new Christian and you may not know that. You may be a lapsed church member who may in fact be unsaved. You ought to think about that. But maybe Cain, who is that? Well, if you want to read all about it, like they say in the newspapers, you can go back to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis in chapter 4. Cain was a son of Adam and Eve. You remember their, their first two sons were Cain and Abel, and something happened. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God made a sacrifice of that lamb in the garden. You remember that? If you don't, go back and read it in Genesis, uh, I think, 3, I believe. I might be wrong on that, but it's right there in Genesis. Yeah, I think Genesis 3. So God makes a blood sacrifice of an innocent little lamb because of the sin of Adam and Eve when they fell from grace. This was pointing forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would eventually die on the cross to pay the full penalty for man's sin. And so it was an act of faith after that. Every time a person brought a blood sacrifice as God outlined it in the law. I don't think what God did there was some, you know, like hidden mysterious thing that Adam and Eve did not understand going forward. And what a shock it must have been to see that dead, precious animal. You see, death was unheard of in the Garden of Eden. So every time they approached God and worship from that point forward, something innocent had to die. There had to be a blood sacrifice. I think this was communicated in no uncertain terms to Cain and Abel. Abel, he went with it. He believed God. He trusted God. And when he approached God in worship, by faith, he offered that blood sacrifice. And you can read about this in Genesis 4. Cain, though, was a rebel. He was a rebel without a clue for sure. He was a rebel, and he felt like his way was good enough. He didn't have to worship God, God's way. His way was just as good. He could worship God on the golf course, out on the fishing boat on Sunday morning. He could watch the preachers on TV when he ought to get himself to church and the whole nine yards. His way was good enough. And if God didn't like it, God could lump it. That's how Cain probably felt. Well, when Cain and Abel came to worship God, Abel, by faith, trusting what God said to do, worship with an innocent blood sacrifice, representing ultimately Christ on the cross. Cain, though, brought the, the produce from his farm, uh, vegetables, I guess, and offered those. He says, God doesn't like it, and I don't care. I think my way's okay and I'm good enough, who needs a blood sacrifice? In fact, many of these people who are false teachers, they, they react, they recoil from the idea of a blood-drenched religion. 
that the cross is offensive to them because it is so crude and cruel and beneath their dignity. And I'm not making that up. These are the the kinds of words and thinking that false teachers inside the church throughout church history have that that's the way they've responded to the idea that they are sinners and their sin is so bad that Jesus Christ the perfect lamb of God sinless had to die for their sins and the sins of mankind for man to be forgiven when he repents that that idea is is reprehensible to these false teachers because they have a better way. And after all, they're not really that bad. That's how they think. So false teachers have gone in the way of Cain. Now, it is not only false worship that that is the way of Cain, but it is also murderous violence. You heard me right. Murderous violence. So why do you say that, Pastor Ed? Because... When God accepted Abel's sacrifice that Abel brought in obedience to God by faith, and the sacrifice was evidence that he was trusting God, and whether he fully understood it or not, God accepted that as him looking forward to the coming and the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he rejected Cain's sacrifice and Cain was challenged with the fact that if, if you do right, you'll be accepted. And Cain just, he would have none of it. He was not going to do this, this worship thing God's way. It'd be his way or no way at all. That's how Cain felt about it. So Cain not only was involved in false worship, but right there in Genesis 4, Cain murders Abel. He rises up and murders him one day out in the field. Cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Capital murder. Oh, man. So you see, false worship often is coupled with murderous violence. You see, false worship, the way of Cain, is an empty, Christ-rejecting religion which persecutes and judges true believers. It even murders them. And church history is replete. It is full of examples like that. If you have never read a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, I challenge you to read it. You can still get it. It's an old book, but it recounts just example after example of those who were killed for their faith from the earliest of church history all the way up through, I believe, about, um, I don't remember the exact dates, but probably up through about the 1700s or late 1600s. And when you read that, it comes through loud and clear that false Christ-rejecting religion wants nothing better than to murder those like Abel who believe in God, God's way, because they think they are good enough, and uh, it just it just drives them crazy to think that they are so bad, so sinful, 
that it required Jesus Christ to die on the cross in their place. They may say they believe that, but when you scratch below the surface a little bit, you'll find out that they absolutely reject that idea. Now, if you go to a church that speaks glowingly of the United Nations, World Council of Churches, National Council of Churches, and the ecumenical movement, and they're always pushing things like a woman's right to choose and all of this, there, there it is right there. I mean, just that one example. You have false worship coupled with murderous violence, the violence of abortion. So that, that is a great example right there. I don't know if it can get more violent than abortion. So that's an example. They've gone in the way of Cain, and secondly, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. Oh boy, Ed, who is this uh, Balaam guy? All right, all right, hang in here. I'm going to help you out. You can go back and read about Balaam in the book of Numbers. So let's see, what is it? Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think I have that in the right order. But anyway, it's right there in the first five books of the, of the Bible, the, the, the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible, the Old Testament. So go about, um, like I say, from memory I may have the number wrong, but it's either the third or fourth book of the Old Testament. But anyway, whichever it is, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, I think it's the fourth. But go to Numbers 22, and you can also look in Numbers chapter 25 and Numbers chapter 31, and you will learn all about Balaam. I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell right here. The, the, uh, the idea of that they ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, what does that mean? All right, Balaam was a prophet of God, and I don't, I don't know how he was a prophet of God, where he lived, and wasn't with the Jewish people. I, don't, I can't explain all that. But anyway, he was, God says, a prophet of God. And when the Jewish people were, were exodusing from Egypt, and they were trying to go into the promised land and make their way forward, one of the local kings in that area wanted to put the hurt on the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's people. So he tried to hire Balaam, whom he knew was a really good prophet. It was kind of idea that, uh, hey, when he prays, things happen, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, well, he, this guy's in touch with God. I want him to help me. So what he did is that king offered you know, basically money. He offered riches and everything that can buy to Balaam to curse the Israelites so that God would not bless them and that king could prevail against them and all of that. Well, God did not want Balaam doing that, obviously, because the Israelites were his people. He was leading them from Egypt to the promised land, right? So Balaam, you know, he, he begs off like the first time. They come back again, and uh, he's a kind of guy that when God says no, he says, well, can't I just like do it a little bit and go a little ways, you know, that kind of thing. So eventually, long story short, 
he ends up trying so he can cash in on all this money being offered him. He ends up trying to curse the people of God, but God just wouldn't let it happen. So finally, he told the king, he said, hey, I cannot curse them because they're blessed by God. He said, but what you should do is you should get them to go into sin, send all your best-looking women in there, get them involved in, um, you know, sexual sin, which was coupled, by the way, with worship, false worship, get them where they're just, they're doing just everything wrong and God will have to judge them. You know, God will, God will curse them. So that was the plan. That king ran with it. And you know what? It worked. And Balaam got his money. God even tried to stop Balaam from this idea by speaking through a donkey. And I take that literally, absolutely. I've even wondered, I don't know this for sure. It's just a wonder. <laughs> I've even wondered if before the fall of man, if there was communication in some way between Adam and the animals. I, that would not surprise me at all. But uh, whether that was true or not, it, with Adam and the animals, God tried to stop Balaam even with this, this donkey. An amazing story, and I, I believe it's literal. And if you say, well, that can't happen, you're, then your God is too small, all right? You don't really believe in God. You don't really believe in the Bible. Well, I do. I make no apology for that. So if God wants to make that happen, he can make that happen. But anyway, the, the, the error of Balaam is he abandoned, just like the false teachers, he abandoned himself to follow after these riches at the expense of God's people. And that's what these false teachers do. They abandon themselves after the error of Balaam. They run greedily after the error of Balaam. We think today, and I know this has been true for, for decades, so this is not new, but so many preachers or televangelists on television and radio are, are just... They're preaching things that aren't true. They're wrong. Now, I'm not talking about everybody who's on some type of media, but I'm saying there's clearly televangelists that have been raking in the dough, and uh, they, they deliver a very watered-down message, if any message at all. They're not talking about Jesus Christ, sin, death, hell, and judgment to come. I can tell you that. But the, a lot of these televangelists are running greedily after the error of Balaam. But, you know, that's kind of an old thing. We know about that. But what about the contemporary bands, uh, so-called contemporary Christian music? Now, don't, please, don't classify me as one of these guys, you know, get off my lawn, you know, on the, on the worship stuff. But, I mean, I, I play guitar. I even have electric guitar and an amp, and I like playing it. I listen to a lot of kinds of music. But I'm telling you, when we approach God, it cannot be with the world's way of doing it. And what may have started out with good intent in the Jesus movement with, with worship, you know, I guess for a long time it was great. But man, we've, we've really taken some detours here in the last decade or so. And some of the doctrine that is in the music that we're being told to sing is against Bible doctrine. 
And not only that, but the, the sometimes the the performers of this music themselves, their their behavior does not match what they say they believe. Again, not in every case. I'm just saying there's a lot of examples of that. So why does that happen? Because there's a lot of money to be made in so-called contemporary Christian music through the, the broadcasting networks and, and the performance rights and you know, all that kind of stuff. So even if people start out with the, with the right intent, it is very easy to swerve from that and put money ahead of the best interest of God's people. That, my friends, is the error of Balaam. There's a, there's a, in, in case of these false teachers, they intentionally lead people into sin, just like Balaam told the king who was against Israel to do. They lead people into sin for money. Even Jesus was betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Come on! Betraying Christ for a handful of silver pieces. That's, that's the ultimate of running after the error of Balaam in Judas. And Judas went to hell because the Bible says that he went to his own place. Now deal with that. So you can't have it both ways. And if, if you're involved in anything like this, and God is convicting you right now, you should repent and get back on the right way if you're even a Christian at all. And you may be, and maybe you swerve, but if you are a real Christian and you're hearing this, this will help lead you back to the right way of God. So these false teachers, woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, that is for profit, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. All right, this, this is the last brain stumper today. Who is this Korah guy? All right, again, go back into the Old Testament. You can also go to the book of Numbers, chapter 16. When God led the people out of Egypt, he, put, he made Moses the leader. Remember that? You know that story. Everybody knows that, hopefully. So Moses is the God-appointed leader that would personally meet with God in the tabernacle, right? You, you will know all about that, right? Okay. And there was the Aaronic priesthood, that is the, the priest in the line of Aaron who did the sacrifices and all of that. But there were also Levites that were not in the priesthood of Aaron, who also served at the tabernacle in the worship. Well, Korah was one of those. He was a Levite. And it says here that these false teachers, what do we see again? One more time. Woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. The word gainsaying there, the Greek word is antilogia. It means to speak against. What did Korah do? He spoke against Moses 
as the clearly God-ordained leader of the Israelites. And basically his point was, hey, we're all servants of God. We're as good as you. Who, who made you in charge? And so he challenged Moses. And Moses didn't argue about it a whole lot. He said, I tell you what, you all get censors, put fire in it, and we'll all go before the Lord, and we'll see who the Lord chooses. And the Lord told Moses, if you go back and read it as number 16, is to you know, clear out of the way. And he, he swallowed up, literally the ground, ground open and swallowed up Korah and everybody associated with him. Talk about an object lesson because he was speaking against, ultimately, now I want you to see this, if God has selected Moses as his God-ordained choice to lead the people of Israel, and Korah and his buddies were challenging Moses, and ultimately they were speaking against who? God. God said, I'm, I'm done with that. And these, these that are like Korah involve themselves in this this gainsaying, this speaking against true spiritual religious leaders, like like I was talking about when that well-known uh, Pulitzer, not Pulitzer Prize, but Peace Prize winning, world-renowned religious leader told Jerry Falwell he could go to hell, that guy. Well, when they do that, they're challenging God. They are rebellious. They are arrogant and they simply are impudent. They cannot be told to shut up, and pride is their middle name. They're all about pride and being proud and all of that. And, you know, at some point, the grace of God, I mean, the, the person, and it might even be you, you can, you can get too close to that line of grace, and God just closes a chapter of your life. And he did that with Korah, and everybody got the message. I can assure you of that. But then it goes on. And this, this focuses more on their, their behaviors right here. These, uh, verse 12, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. So what does he say here? Verse 12, these are spots in your feast of charity. These are, these are blemishes in your feast of charity when they feast with you. You see, the early church had a love feast, an agape meal, sort of like our potluck dinners. The whole church got together, the Folks who were better off brought a lot. The folks who didn't have a lot brought what they could. Everything was shared. Everybody was to enjoy the meal and be in good fellowship and you know, rejoice in the Lord. And he said, yet you've got these, these blemishes in your, your feast of charity. You know, when you get together for church, which often involved a meal, and I like that, by the way, <laughs> He said, these are, these are blemishes in your, your feast of charity, your love feast, your agape meals, when they feast with you. Now, why did he say that? Because they were, he tells us, feeding themselves without fear. They had no reverence for God, for Jesus Christ. 
The Son, for who's God, by the way, and no reverence for the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. No reverence. Why? Because they're not saved. They're not spiritual. They're natural. They're lost. So quite understandably, even though they were involving themselves in the life of the church, they had no reverence for God or the things of God. And it says they're feeding themselves without fear. The A.T. Robertson, the great Southern Baptist Greek scholar, said basically they were shepherding, rather, shepherding only themselves. Because that word feeding themselves is the idea of being a shepherd. Well, what's a shepherd supposed to do? Not just feed himself, he's supposed to feed the flock, right? Take care of the flock, take oversight over them, feed them the word of God, minister to them. Well, these aren't doing it. They're only there to collect a paycheck and everything else they can get in addition to a paycheck. This is a prototypical religious leader. A lot of times they're mama's boys that mama sent off to a seminary somewhere. They got a degree, they got in church work because it looked like easy work. Now, I've been in church work, friend. None of you could run with me for a week in church work. I'm telling you, your tongues will be hanging out. If you serve God and the church he puts you in the way you should, it is an exertion beyond anything imaginable. And yet, these lost religious people, they just look at it like a career. Is this a career option? Some people are lawyers. I'm a preacher or a pastor, or a priest, or whatever they want to call themselves. And there's, they're not taking care of the flock of God. They are feeding themselves only and without fear, without reverence for God. And that's a problem. That is a true problem. But I want to point out here again that these false teachers are among you. They are inside the gate already. And it is a current problem in churches. You may belong to a church or denomination that is completely riddled with this. There may be a few people in your denomination that truly love the Lord and His Word and are doing their best in the power of God to minister as they should. But by and large, many of you attend churches and are in denominations where the leadership of your churches and your denomination, they haven't got a clue. And if you're starting to sense that, you are probably not going to change a a denomination that's completely given over to that. You might ought to be seeking the Lord's leadership to a Bible-centered, Christ-honoring church that has the right kind of true spiritual leadership, who's in it for God and not for themselves. So in verse 12, he goes further, and he says, They are are clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. I remember one time when I was a younger man, the area I lived in at the time had been through a serious drought. And we needed rain. And I could see off in the distance these massive, huge, dark storm clouds. And I thought, maybe, maybe we'll have some rain today out of that. You know, 
You don't see this a lot, but those clouds came and went. It never even rained over that area. There's one that I still remember it because it was so amazing to see it completely go by. Well, that's like these false teachers. Clouds they are without water. You know, if you need rain and clouds are coming, hopefully they've got water in them, right? So you can get some rain. Well, well they're of no use. And they're carried about of winds. These are not people who stand for truth. It's just wherever the opinion pole goes, they're, they're on it. You know, find out where the crowd's going and get out in front. That's kind of how they look at it. It reminds me of when some of the contemporary churches install fog machines in their worship center for the, quote, worship time. First of all, I have no idea why rock bands even use fog machines. I guess it's just a special effect. I don't get it. I don't even get it with secular music. So I completely have no idea how that in, is involved with Christian worship. You know, maybe in a drama or something. But I mean, it's just a part of worship, a fog machine. Well, these, these false teachers have about as much use as those clouds produced by those fog machines. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. But here's a third thing in that verse, in verse 12. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. These people have issues. <laughs> The tree that is the trees that are mentioned here are late autumn trees. Now, if it's late autumn, then that means the the fruit bearing time should have already happened. Certainly by autumn, right? So you can harvest it. If it's late autumn, if they're ever going to produce fruit, they should be producing it now. But they don't. You know why? They're dead. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead plucked up by the roots. Good luck on ever getting any good fruit out of trees like that. Well, that's who these false teachers are that are worming their way into the church, teaching false doctrine and improper living. Verse 13, it goes on. It gets worse. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. It is the picture here of, of, the, of the ocean, which just dredges up, you know, all the, the sand and everything in the ocean. And, and maybe the picture of like when, when the, uh, you know, the surf washes up all the, the dead wood and debris and just the yuck stuff from the ocean on the shore. You know, they're, what, they're not pretty, and what they do is not pretty. And, and they're, they're proud of their own shameful deeds. And these begin to come out, and you see this from time to time in uh, the news. They are wandering stars, Jude says, wandering stars. These are, these are stars that are off course, <laughs> Uh, like a, think of a comet, just that idea, you know, like a shooting star. You know, if I'm lost in the forest or the desert and I know a little bit about my stars, I can, 
I can orient myself by the stars and figure out where north is, and I know east, south, west, and all of that, and I can get, you know, not be lost anymore. That's because the stars are in a fixed known position, you know, in relation to each other. That way, you the north star is always going to be the north star. You see what I'm saying? Well, these are wandering stars. They're all over the place. And it says, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So, so what is reserved for them? The gloom of utter darkness forever. I remember when I was a little boy, I don't remember how young, but you know, probably like five or six or something, our family took the big trip. We went to Ruby Falls. <laughs> outside Chattanooga, Tennessee. I mean, I got to tell you, if you live in the South and you've not been to Ruby Falls yet, you need to get busy and get there. Ruby Falls, and oh, by the way, while you're there, see Rock City, which is right there near it. But I remember the impression it made on me when we were taken to the the bottom, the total depth of Ruby Falls. And of course, they have lighting in there so nobody gets killed, you know, going down to the bottom where the falls drop into the cavern. But then when you get to where they want you to be and they get get everybody assembled, this is how I remember it anyway, they turn the lights out and you're in absolute, utter darkness. There is no natural light in the depths of that cavern. And you can hear the falls falling into there. And then they turn it on and you you see the falls. And everybody goes, wow, you know, and all that. But the story is told of Civil War soldiers who, uh, to escape capture, went into those falls and got trapped there, uh, into those caverns, got trapped there, and they were in there, I believe, for months before they, or maybe not months, but they were in there a long, long time before they could get out. And when they came out and they faced the sunlight again, they, they were virtually blind. Uh, anyway, that's, that's the way I heard it. <laughs> that's the story I remember. But these false teachers are, are it, it says, to whom is reserved the blackness that is the gloom of darkness, of utter darkness forever. And by the way, one of the features of a literal hell, it is is dark. Wow. I mean, you put two and two together and figure it out. Now, just so we don't end on a, a really low depressing note, because this is only part one of Bad Fellas, I do want to finish out with verse 14 and 15, and we'll come back to these two verses in our next episode in more detail. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners has spoken against him. So in the end, we win. We may not be able to get get rid of all the false teaching and stand 
you know, win the complete victory in this because it is going to be an ongoing struggle until the Lord returns. And we should do what we should do. But I want you to know that in the end, when Christ returns, He will absolutely deal with it. Absolutely. And you who believe in Jesus Christ and the Word of God and true spiritual things, you are truly saved. You will be vindicated. And those who have given true believers such a hard time throughout history and even today, they will answer to a God who brings judgment. And I hope that that balances those scales, so to speak, right now for you. And we're not even done with what Jude describes these bad fellows as. And we'll get to that in part two of Bad Fellows in the next episode. I'm so glad, again, that you have joined us on today's podcast. I hope that you have found it to be biblically accurate and instructive and, yea, even inspirational. Well, I want you to know that we can be found on Spotify. I think we're on iHeart Radio Podcast, Google Play, uh, perhaps still on whatever platform Apple uses. The easiest way to find us is to subscribe. Go ahead right now and hit the subscribe button so that you get an alert every time a new episode is posted. But about once a week, we post a new episode. So whether you subscribe or not, I hope you will, but if you do not, you can check with us about once a week and find a new episode. We will never, ever charge for you to listen to these. This is my ministry to you and to the world at large, free of any charge whatsoever. Well, thank you again for listening today. Tell your neighbors, friends, and relatives, co-workers, school mates, whoever, teammates, tell them they can listen to at www.dredhill.podbean.com. Remember, there's no period after the D-R. It's just D-R-E-D-H-I-L-L dot podbean dot com. That is the home of this week in the Word. If you would like counseling or like to make a decision for Christ, I'm going to give you a toll-free number that you can call, 888-537-8720. One more time, 888-537-8720. Call during normal business hours. Let them know that you would like more information about the Christian life or how to become a Christian. God bless you is my prayer. Have a wonderful week.